several times recently in our services in one form or another. Um, it's also some things that I've ministered before, but I just, I've learned over the years to recognize when the Lord has us in a vein, we need to follow that until he's done with that particular message or direction that he wants to speak to his people about. So Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we are starting to read at verse 3. Scripture says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. The, the hypocrisy in that verse is quite breathtaking because they paid the money out in the first place. Verse 7 says, And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them to the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. The help of the Lord this morning, I'm going to be ministering about the price. The price. Let's pray one more time. Father, we... Lord, we know your word is alive. We know it's anointed. We know it's powerful. We know, Lord, that if we have faith, that it is always profitable to us. And so today I pray, as we open your word, that you would speak to us, that we would receive your word, that it would strengthen, that it would edify, that it would encourage, that it would cause us to see things the way you would have us to see them, Lord God, we pray. Anoint this vessel, I pray, to minister in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are ministering about the price. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 hand-picked apostles of the Messiah, will unfortunately be infamous forever for his betrayal of the Lord. He was a man who, like the others, walked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus, stayed in the same houses and locations as Jesus, he was like the others in that he was sent out with them in pairs to heal the sick, to cast out demons. He was a man who was trusted with the finances. He's described as being the one who carried or held the bag. They didn't, they didn't have an online account. It was very much a physical thing. He took care of expenses and probably when they were able to oversaw the distribution of funds to the poor. And somewhere during the years of the ministry of Jesus, Judas allowed something into his heart that left unchecked would eventually cause his downfall and destruction. One verse even describes Satan entering into Judas while he ate with the Lord himself. That, that verse is sobering and terrifying at the same time, that he would become in such a spiritually reprobate condition that that was possible. And it reached a point, it reached its pinnacle 
with Judas where the final straw was that he went to the chief priests. He sought them out and offered to betray the Lord and they entered into a, the Bible says in the King James, they entered into a covenant with him. We would perhaps say they cut a deal with him for 30 pieces of silver to betray the Lord. Some of you would know this was not a random figure, but it is the fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. As well as that, it is the amount that was under the law of Moses that was considered appropriate compensation for the loss of a slave. In Exodus chapter 21 and verse 32, it says, If the ox shall push a manservant or a maid servant, when it says push, it's not meaning a gentle shove, speaking about its horns. If an ox shall push a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give unto their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So when we consider that the price of betrayal that Judas was paid was also the price of a slave, it emphasizes scriptures such as Philippians 2 and 7, where the word says that he made himself of no reputation took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. The incarnation or God manifest in the flesh, the creator becoming creature, was already an incredible act of humility, that he would do what he did, that the one to whom the angels sang day and night would choose to walk among those who had rejected him, would continue to reject him, is beyond our comprehension. And if that wasn't far enough, if becoming like us wasn't enough, when he came to be among us, he chose to be of little or no esteem amongst mankind. Isaiah 53 and 2 prophesied and said that he would grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we shall desire him. God, when he expressed himself in human form, could have come as the most attractive man that ever walked the face of the earth. Could have been stunningly handsome, gifted orator with with talents and all the abilities. But the scripture says that in, in the natural sense to observe him, there was nothing about him that made him stand out. He was just an average face and an average crowd on an average day. He deliberately chose the lowest pathway. His birth, when you study scripture, his birth was questionable in the eyes of others. His development was in obscurity. He was not living in the best part of town or on the right side of the tracks. He owned no land, no houses, no flocks. The team that he selected was a group of the most unlikely characters ever assembled. The movers and shakers of his day despised him and he fellowshiped with those that others avoided. And he was betrayed for the price of a slave. We understand, at least in a simple way, that price is usually set by the value of something. Now, when you go to a shop and the price isn't on an item, perhaps it's just the way I say things, you may do the same, but I might say, what is that worth? It's not really the question we should be asking. The question is, what is the price? Because price and worth are two very interesting ideas. You know, the concept of value 
is quite fascinating. How do we determine what something is worth? In this world, there are factors such as rarity. There's a reason we don't all have gold nuggets on our footpaths. Things like demand. The demand for certain materials and products drives the price up or down. If you've ever been trying to find a rental or you're looking to buy a house, the price of both of those is really affected by how many people are also looking to buy a house or get a rental. There are things that are of sentimental value. There are things that many of you possibly have in your homes that you couldn't give away, but to you they have sentimental value. I have a few different items that belong to my grandfather that I probably couldn't get a dollar for on eBay or Gumtree, but because of their value, their sentimentality, they are valuable to me. There are things that are valuable by association. If you were to come to my house and get my running shoes, I don't run, but they're running shoes, you wouldn't be able to sell them for very much. But if you could go to LeBron James's house, if you don't know who that is, he's one of the most famous basketball players getting around at the moment, for those of you who think he was better than Michael Jordan, you're deceived. But if you were able to get to his house and get a pair of his runners and then sell them on the internet, the materials of similar value, rubber, leather, different fabrics, but by association, they have value. The rise and fall of markets, things like real estate, oil, petrol, natural resources, gold, gas, coal, all of those things, the value goes up and down because of a lot of contributing factors, a lot of them political. If you've ever traveled overseas, you understand that there is currency exchange, how much the Australian dollar is worth in the country that you travel to. When my family went to the United States in 2011, we got a dollar and four cents US for one Australian dollar. When my wife and I were there in 2019, I think we had about 70 cents. They were the same Australian dollars as far as I was concerned. But in the market, values come and go. Different stages of life can cause us to value some things more than others. Let's talk about sleep. When you're a child, it is the last thing you want to do. Your parents have to often struggle to get you to go to sleep. When you get older, the idea of sleep is a wonderful thing. And a nap or to be able to go to bed early and not have anything to do is fantastic. Sleep is the same, but your perspective has changed. Education. Many of us, particularly those of us of the masculine gender, don't often appreciate education until it's a little late in the day. And we look back and we think, I probably should have tried at school. I probably should have done a little bit more than I did. And then it's by then, well, you can go back in different ways. Money. When you get to the end of your life and you know you're in the latter years and you know that perhaps you don't have a long time left, how much money you have in the bank becomes very unimportant. Things like your family and your relationships increase dramatically. Your health. Remember when you're a young person, you don't think about health. Young people sometimes, when I'm talking about particularly adolescents, you, you think you're invincible. That's why young people do crazy things that you don't do when you get older. As you get older, you look at it and go, yeah, I'm not going to do that. When you're younger, you just tend to charge in, do reckless things, you know, and you eat all manner of nonsense when you're young, and it doesn't seem to affect you. And you get older, and you have a couple of bad meals, and you can hardly get out of bed in the morning. 
Relationships, value changes. We've already sort of touched on that. What about things like freedom? How much do we value freedom? Many of us, if you were born and raised in this nation, you don't really have the concept of your freedom being threatened. But others that have come from places where there is conflict, there is war, there is strife, there is insurrection, freedom is a much more fragile commodity. What about grace? It's funny how something, unless we actually pay for it, we don't often put a lot of value on it. Amen. But grace. I've shared this example before, but I always think it's a really good one. I read an anecdote about a person who had an old fridge they wanted to get rid of and they put it out on their footpath, stuck a piece of paper to it and said, free. Fridge sat there for days. Nobody took it. So they changed the piece of paper and put $10 and the fridge was stolen that night. Because all of a sudden it apparently had value. And so somebody thought they'd steal the fridge. Perception of value. Amen. If the ministry of Jesus was a political campaign, if the goal was to seek popularity and influence or to be considered special or valuable, he did everything wrong. He did everything wrong. In in the eyes and the measurements of humanity, his methods were a disaster. He mixed with the wrong people. He went to the wrong places. He said the wrong things. He upset people sometimes. And yet, the multitudes came out to him. And yet, the crowds, thousands of people thronged him. And several times, he he did a miracle for somebody. He healed them or he delivered them. And he said, don't tell anybody. You know, that's not the way we would, you know... Humanity would publicize these things. But he said, don't, don't tell people. Don't spread the word about this. But they couldn't help themselves and they went and they told everybody. In Matthew 7 and 24 it says, And from thence he arose, went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it. He just wanted to get away from the crowd for a while. But he could not be hid. He was not seeking the multitude, but the multitude was seeking him because his value could not and still cannot be measured in their economy of empty religious rituals or legalistic formalism. And so they discounted him as worthless, but he was definitely not worthless. And the problem was then and still is that we do not have a market that can put a value on a messiah. We do not have the ability to quantify his worth. There, there's, there's no natural resources or, or national economies that, that he fits into. He is not listed on the stock exchange. There are no units of measurement or currency that can work out how much Jesus is worth. If I was to ask you today, if you've been born again, what is the value of grace? What is the value of forgiveness? Can you put a price on that? Is there a dollar figure that we're comfortable saying his grace is equal to? No, there isn't because there is no market where you can measure that. And the reality is the only way we had any hope was if it was free because we could never, ever afford it. I want to read something to you. I've read this before, but it's an article. It says, on a very cold morning, January 12, 2007, A man sat in a metro train station in Washington, D.C. and started to play the violin. He played six classical Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. During that time, since it was rush hour, they calculated that 
Thousands and thousands of people went through that station, most of them on their way to work. A few minutes went by and a middle-aged man noticed that there was a musician playing. Slowed his pace, stopped for a few seconds and then hurried up to meet his busy schedule. A minute later, the violinist received his first dollar tip. Woman threw the money in his case and without stopping continued to walk. A few minutes later, someone leaned against the wall to listen to him but then looked at their watch and realized they were going to be late and they left as well. The one who paid the most attention to the musician was a three-year-old boy. His mother, any parent of young children understands, trying to tug him along in a hurry because he was distracted, but the child kept stopping to look at the musician, and finally the mother got a bit more serious, and the child began to walk, turning his head as he left. This action was repeated by several other children. All the parents, without exception, forced their children to move on. In the 45 minutes the musician played, only six people stopped and stayed for a few moments. About 20 gave him money, but continued to walk on at their normal pace. He collected the grand sum of $32. When he finished playing and silence took over, no one noticed it. Nobody applauded. There was no recognition. You see, the average commuter did not recognize that the violinist was Joshua Bell, who at the time was one of the most talented musicians in the entire world. He played some of the most intricate pieces ever written on a violin worth somewhere around three and a half million dollars. Two days before his concert in the subway, he played in a sold-out theatre where seats averaged over $100 per person. This was a social experiment that was conducted by the Washington Post newspaper to examine how people perceive things to ask the question of does what we value have to do more with packaging and promotion than it does with the, average, with the product itself? How different would that day have been in the train station if they had advertised that he was playing there? It would have been really hard to get on the train, I imagine. Or if they'd actually charged people an entrance fee to get into the station and hear him pay. It must be worthwhile. I'll pay for a ticket. But being able to come in for free and go past a random musician... It's just another busker. I mean, I couldn't tell you one piece of classical music from another. Some of you may be able to. And in a similar sense, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been played in obscure places like that train station for 2,000 years. And multitudes walk by all the time, not recognizing the value of its message or the one that it tells us about. Luke chapter 7 Starting to read at verse 36, a very well-known passage of Scripture. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, stood at his feet behind him weeping, began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, in other words, just in his own mind, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. doesn't tell us what kind of sinner she was. Some assume it was prostitution or something. I mean, everybody Jesus spoke to was a sinner. But this lady was particularly labeled, so it was obviously something that they considered to be very unacceptable. 
And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. You see, you've got to be careful what you even think when you're around Jesus. And Simon said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor that had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly or promptly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? And Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Well done, you passed the test. But there's a supplementary question. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with tears, wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil, that it's not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loveth much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. The lesson, there's a whole lot of lessons in this passage, but I think the main lesson that Jesus was trying to communicate to Simon was not that he only had a little debt. He wasn't saying, Simon, you're a really good guy and she's just a filthy, wicked sinner. That wasn't the message. The message was that Simon perceived himself to only have a little debt. Whereas the woman with the alabaster box was very aware of her condition, very aware of her spiritual status. And because of Simon's inaccurate perception, he only had a little gratitude. To Simon, Jesus was an interesting dinner guest. To the woman, Jesus was so much more than that. Exactly what she understood of who Jesus was, we cannot be certain, but something about him caused her to be willing to humble, even humiliate herself in front of others and to offer the most expensive item that she owned to honor him. You see, the more that we understand who Jesus is, the greater our revelation of the mighty God in Christ, the the clearer we get that picture of the fact that in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The more that that happens to us, the more we ought to be amazed that we have a high priest, the Bible says, that is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, that He is aware of our weaknesses, that He deliberately went out of His way to experience them so He could relate to us and redeem us. It ought to cause us to worship Him. It ought to cause us to think, Lord, I am so thankful. And yet, he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Executed like a common common criminal, buried in a borrowed tomb. That was the price that they thought that he was worth. Such an incredible imbalance. Such total injustice. Such an extreme error. In measuring value. He's talking about the price today. You know that imbalance in price, when you read on in the scripture, that imbalance in price and value is then turned upside down completely. And it comes a lot closer to home. In Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 6, it says, For when we were yet without strength, 
In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you and I, when you look into the meanings of these verses, when we did not have any strength, did not have any power, did not have any ability to change our situation, to change our spiritual status, to even take away the smallest sin that we ever committed, however you choose to marry that or measure that rather. We, we were not an investment that was worth investing in according to the scales of the world, according to how the world measures and values and prices things. We were not a good investment. And then the, the writer of Romans went on to say that it is very rare that someone would be willing to die for a righteous person, for an upright individual, for a good citizen. But possibly in extreme and unique circumstances, somebody might be willing to die for a really, really good person, for someone who is very special, for somebody who is considered to have incredible value, or where they said it's still not very likely. It's not the sort of thing that happens much at all. That's, that's what verse 7 is telling us. It's rare. People don't just die for one another lightly. It's a last-ditch decision. But then in verse 8 it says, But God, that he demonstrated or commended his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, as I mentioned recently, one modern paraphrase says, while we were of no use whatsoever to him, he died for us. The one who had angels announce his birth, the only one that could ever claim to be truly sinless, the one who was considered of no more value by his own creation than a slave, he paid a king's ransom for you and me. You want to talk about upside down value, as upside down as his price was to mankind so also was the price that he paid for us. His image creature. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's you. His image creature, humanity, fashioned, designed, made to be like him, to reflect him and yet horrendously broken and disfigured, almost beyond recognition, was redeemed with a price that again, no market could ever place a value on. No market could ever measure what he paid for our salvation. You know, pride, pride is the, in a certain sense the root of all sin. Anything that exalts its own opinion or how we value ourselves above others and above God is the seedbed of sinful thoughts which then lead to sinful actions. There's there, you know, there is a reason that the scripture teaches us that pride comes before destruction. The world says that pride comes before a fall. It's always the way with the world. They dilute the word of God. The scripture says a haughty look comes before a fall, but pride comes before destruction. Pride, God cannot work with pride. In fact, James tells us that he resists the proud. He pushes back against the proud, against those that have their own motives, that have their own glory in mind, their own exaltation, and I will do what I want 
to do. Pride is, a, is destructive and pretty well all of sin can find its roots in pride in some way or another because the ultimate definition of pride is man deciding he doesn't need God and that he is capable of life without God. But the reverse, if I can use that word, the reverse can be equally as devastating. Sin wants us to live in a place of self-condemnation, of despising ourselves, of being convinced that we are of no value, that we are beyond hope and that we can never really be loved. And if we're honest, many of us, if not all of us, have felt those sentiments, those emotions at one point or another. Some of us possibly even struggle with those today. If you've ever seen an animal that's been abused by its owners and then you see someone begin to try and rehabilitate that animal, particularly if you see clips for people trying to take care of dogs that have been abused, the, the animals are usually both fearful and very aggressive, very aggressive. And it seems as though the animal cannot comprehend that someone wants to care for them. I'm sure you've seen some of that. When that animal has been abused, it, it's, its whole thinking and re- relation to everything else has been adjusted. And sin is the greatest abuser of humanity. It, ca- it causes us to abuse ourselves and to abuse others. It may not always be physical, it can be verbal, it can be emotional, it can be a psychological, but sin is never in the, in the interest of promoting well-being. It is always designed to steal, kill, and destroy. And so because of that, it is not always easy to accept that the King of Kings has laid down his life for you. But when you are born again of water and spirit, and I know God wants to communicate this to somebody today, You need to allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to change your thinking. We must always, always view ourselves through the grace of God, through the love of God. It's never about our own merit. But Jesus thought you were worth the price that he paid. He thought that you were worth the king's ransom. He thought you were worth the only sinful man paying the ultimate price for. And when we come to him because of the pathway that brings us to him, we're like that abused animal that we struggle to accept that there is somebody that is interested in our well-being, that is interested in us becoming whole, becoming complete, becoming well again. But he paid the ultimate price. And if you are one of those people that words come out of your mouth about being worthless or being without value or not being a good person or however it is you choose to phrase it, you need to stop that. Because he has a different opinion. And in every argument, he wins. (laughs) He wins. Amen. We need to allow that to sink into our hearts and minds because then what it will do is it will produce worship. It will produce thanksgiving. It will produce a desire to exalt and to magnify him and say, I want to give him my all. Because of what he paid for me, I want to give him my all. Hallelujah. The one who was sold for the price of a slave paid a king's ransom for my soul and for your soul. It's upside down. In natural measurements, it is so upside down. It is so out of balance. It so doesn't make sense. But I am so glad that he did. Why don't we lift our hands and just worship him?
Thank you, Jesus. God, give us revelation today, I pray. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. We're talking about the price this morning. Yes, it's true that the scripture says there's none good but God. Yes, it's true that you've sinned. Yes, it's true that you've messed up. You were a liar, a thief, a fornicator, an idol worshipper, a violent person, a drunkard of any kind of addiction, rebellious, disobedient, foul-mouthed, and on and on and on the list goes. But then the Apostle Paul said, and such were some of you, that you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Talking about the price this morning. But pastor, I knew better. I was raised in church. I, I didn't have an excuse. I can't plead ignorance. It doesn't matter. He paid anyway. Your debt is paid in full. Throughout the word of God, time and time again, we see God deliberately choose the unlikely, the undesirable, the overlooked to demonstrate grace, mercy and power. I believe that one of the reasons he did was so that he would be the only one that would get the glory. But there was also a message that he was communicating that it doesn't matter how far or how bad or how broken he was able to restore, to redeem, to reconcile unto himself. Some of my favorite examples, you go back to the book of Joshua, the Israelites come against the city of Jericho and there is a woman in that city by the name of Rahab, who is a prostitute who, who, who hides the slaves. Sorry, the spies. Got slaves stuck in my mind. She hides the spies in her home and the soldiers come looking for them. And she says, you know, she basically says, I need you to promise me that you'll, when you take this city, because your God is bigger than our God, when, when you take this city, that you'll preserve me and my family. And they said, as long as you stay in your house and as long as this red rope is hanging out of the window, we will do everything we can. We make that promise. And when that city is destroyed and those walls miraculously fall down, Rahab and her family are saved. She goes on, not just to be delivered, but she marries a man by the name of Salmon or Salmon, however you want to pronounce his name, and becomes an Israelite, becomes a part of the people of God's covenant, God's promises. A little while later, there's a book of Ruth, a Moabites, an unclean Gentile, unacceptable to the Jews socially, unacceptable to the Jews according to the law of Moses. And yet God makes a way for this young lady to adopt the faith of her mother-in-law, to return to Israel, to marry a man by the name of Boaz. And God doesn't just save them and provide for them. He makes them his (laughs) great-grandmothers. He made sure that their names... We're in the family record in Matthew chapter 1. There's a whole bunch of people that aren't there. But Rahab and Ruth. You know, if Jesus had a big old family Bible with all his descendants in the front few pages, they're in there. He managed to bring them out of obscurity and hopelessness and put them in the lineage of his humanity. Hallelujah. Don't think you're any worse than they were. They were idol worshippers. 
and yet he was able to redeem them. Hallelujah. You know, it's Christmas time. And there are carols playing in the supermarkets, and some of you don't like that. Some of you do. Uh, I'd rather have the carols than what they're usually playing. (laughs) I worked at Woolworths in Cairns for about 18 months, and things were pretty low budget there. They had one, one playlist of Christmas songs, and it played 24 hours a day. Started in somewhere in November, I think it was. Played through to the new year, and it was like psychological torture. I drove home from work every day singing the songs from that playlist without even wanting to sing the songs. Knew them all word perfect, I still do, some 25 years later. But you know, I have a Christmas playlist on my phone, much to my children's disgust. I try not to play it in the car until at least the 1st of December. And one of, one of my favourite carols is O Holy Night. It was written almost 200 years ago. I don't know if you realize it, but it was originally written in French. And the first four lines of that song, that carol, whatever you want to call it, that hymn, really, you know, I understand it's not scripture, I'm not suggesting it is, but it struck me recently, these are are the first four lines, it says, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining. You know what pining means? It means you're in such a state of distress that you're about to give up hope and fade away. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining. And then the fourth line says, till he appears and the soul felt its worth. That's what it says. Because he came. Because of what he achieved when he came in flesh. Because he was willing to pay the ultimate price for us, suddenly there was a price and a value on your soul. The soul felt its worth. He, he demonstrated what you were worth. You probably had your own ideas. Others had their own ideas. That's always been the case of how people have measured one another. But when he came, in an eternal sense, the soul felt its worth. Amen. If you've ever doubted that you had value, if you've ever felt like you were beyond love because of the abuse of sin, it is my prayer this morning that in his presence, in this house, that your soul would feel its worth. Let's stand together this morning. Jesus allowed them to treat him without value so that he could demonstrate our value to him. When you think about the price this morning, it ought to cause you to lift your hands and worship him. Why don't we just do that for a minute today? Lord, that hymn that Carol describes our status, Lord, we were in that place without hope, we're in sin and pining, Lord God, in destruction and devastation. And then you appeared, Lord God, You appeared, Lord, and put a price on our souls, Lord God. You appeared and said it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how foolish or how stupid your choices may have been. It doesn't matter how embarrassed you are about the journey you've been on. I consider you worth paying for. Your soul 